Let's um, just bow our hearts one more time as we, we turn to God's word together. Father, we thank you once again for your word that it is living and powerful. Father, we thank you for this book that is unlike any other book in this world. For Lord, this is your word. And Lord, as we turn to study this book this morning, this book of Isaiah, Lord, speak to us, we pray. Lord, I pray that you stir our hearts. Lord, remind us again of your grace. Remind us again, Lord, of the cost. And Father, call us, Father, out of our complacency to live lives that are just full of your spirit, that we may be active in our Christian life, Lord, not just watching things go by, but Lord, that you would use us to bring honor and glory to you. Father, we just commit this time of study to you. Just bless the words that I say, Father, unblock our ears and our hearts. Lord, may we be open and receptive to that which you have to say to us through your Holy Spirit this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this truly is an incredible book. The the book of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah, however you wish to uh, pronounce his name. He's been said that he's the first, obviously, of the major prophets. Um, This title, Major Prophets, is simply in regard to the quantity of their writings. And typically we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel as uh, the major prophets. And it's simply that the the, the volume of their writings is considered to be uh, uh, more than, obviously, the minor prophets which will follow. Isaiah is referred to also as the Messianic prophet. And obviously it's very obvious as we start to look at some of the themes he develops. Um, one commentator refers to him as the statesman prophet. And he said, Isaiah heads the list as the greatest of all the prophets. He is the standard by which others are measured. As a statesman, he has no equal among the prophets. As a preacher of social reform, none excelled him. Well, we find that the book of Isaiah is quoted uh, in the New Testament 308 times. That's more than any other Old Testament book. And it's more like the New Testament in its message also than the Old Testament books are. There's a very New Testament flavor to the message we find in this book. Nowhere else do we find such a clear view of God's grace in the Old Testament. Isaiah also has been called the fifth evangelist, or the the gospel according to Isaiah, some refer to it as, simply because of this message of grace that comes through. Uh, Robinson commentator said this, he said, Isaiah is the St. Paul of the Old Testament. Again, just unveiling God's amazing grace to us. What was the reason for writing this book. Well, of course, Isaiah is called of the Lord. And these things he writes down as he goes through his ministry, as he receives various visions and uh, messages and situations. But really it was to correct and reprove and admonish the Hebrews of his day, uh, those living in the land. And it was to reveal the coming judgment on Israel's heathen neighbours for all the evils done to the people of God. And also to declare and explain God's redemptive plan for Israel and the associated nations. And also to prepare God's people for the coming Babylonian captivity. So they were the key reasons that we find as we study the book uh, for writing. And then finally, um, it was to teach the Jews themselves that salvation would come only from God. Not man. No man can bring salvation. This is one of the problems we find with all false religions. They set somebody up 
who's supposedly this individual who is in some way able to bring salvation. Of course that's not possible. Only God can bring salvation, not man. And so any alliances that Israel were making with neighbouring nations are shown to be totally fruitless. Any alliances that we would make with things of this world are also totally fruitless. There's a number of uh, literary qualities just to mention, and there's loads of uh, writings. If you look through some of the commentaries, you'll find lots of people will talk about um, the the beauty of, of the book of Isaiah, uh, saying that the, 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 from a literary standpoint, it's unexcelled. Um, it stands, again, as the head of all the books of prophecy, as we mentioned, so much uh, depth in this book. Um, many have said that the, Isaiah's style marks the high point of Hebrew literary art. Um, again, just the way he writes, the kind of topics he uses, the illustrations he gives, very beautiful picturesque illustrations, even the words that he uses. Um, and just to, again, as I mentioned, the style that he writes in uh, from a Hebrew perspective is all poetic, except for uh, just a few chapters in the middle. We mentioned those chapters from 36 through 39, which very much a historical narrative. But the rest of the book is written in a kind of a poetic form. George Robinson said this, No prophet... Combined more perfectly than Isaiah, earthly wisdom and sagacity, that's kind of foresight, discernment and so on, Uh, courage and conviction, versatility of gifts and singleness of purpose, with a clear vision and spiritual intuition, a love of righteousness, and a keen appreciation of Jehovah's majesty and holiness. That's quite a summary, but that's what he says, and, and all of those things we see do apply. Richard Moulton said, it may be safely asserted that nowhere else in the literature of the world have so many colossally great ideas been brought together within the limits of a single work. Another commentator, Driver, said this, uh, he was an artist with words. His poetic genius is superb. So... Lots of people said lots of wonderful things about this book. Just as a writing on its own, it's incredible. But of course, we're more interested in the spiritual aspects of this and the things that we can learn. Of course, Isaiah, just like the other prophets in his day, were unpopular. Uh, We're going to see this as we go through looking at the prophets. The prophets, of course, weren't just um, uh, predicting. We've said this many times before. The Bible doesn't deal with predictions. We kind of predict things. We try and predict the weather and so on. And we have an educated guess based upon the information. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible unveils future events before we get to them. They were foretelling God's will to their generation as well. Isaiah himself, we read in the text, was the son of Amos. Now, just don't confuse, this is not the prophet Amos. So we have a book uh, later, one of the minor prophets, Amos. Uh, This is not the same individual. Uh, In the Hebrew, the first and last letters of the name are different. Um, So don't get confused, this isn't the the other prophet Amos that we're going to find of. But interestingly, Amos seems to be the brother of King Isaiah's father. Okay, So the tradition is that this makes Isaiah the cousin of... Of King Isaiah. Now that's just interesting from a, the perspective that it would give, of course, Isaiah access to the king, and we see that in chapter 7, verse 3. We find that Isaiah has this kind of intimacy with the high priest, a relationship there, uh, again afforded seemingly by his position. Chapter 8, verse 2, we see that. Um, and also we find that he prepares a biography of uh, Hezekiah, one of the, the latter kings, as we'll see as we go through. Uh, that's recorded in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 32. So Isaiah has, unlike most of the other prophets, 
a very elevated position to start with. He's very uh, respected, seemingly, uh, and so on. And yet his message is still not accepted. It doesn't matter what position we come from. Um, if we're preaching, speaking for the Lord, whether we're uh, down and out, whether we're the highest exalted place, if we're speaking on behalf of God, it's going to be an unpopular message because it's not what people want to hear. Uh, Jerusalem, of course, is where he was uh, based. That was his home, and that's where he served as kind of a court preacher and so on. His name, interestingly, just means Jehovah saves, uh, which is interesting. There's a few other, I mean, Jehoshua, uh, Joshua, again, a similar meaning uh, for his name. Um, so a very godly name, seemingly obviously given by his parents to him. Uh, the ministry extends from about 750 years before Jesus to around about 700 years before Jesus. Okay, so it's about a 50 year kind of span of ministry that he's working through. And we see that his call to the prophetic office, as it were, starts in chapter 6 verse 1 when King Isaiah dies. It says, when King Isaiah dies, I saw the Lord. It's just interesting to note how often God uses a personal tragedy in our lives to cause us to reflect on the meaning and purpose of our lives. And seemingly with Isaiah, at this point, his cousin seemingly dies. And at this point, there's this moment of looking at his own life. And it's at this point that God reveals himself to Isaiah. Maybe now he's ready to listen and to consider these things. It's time, of course, to reevaluate. We were looking previously in the book of Ecclesiastes. What is it that makes life worth living? You know, the question and challenge to us again this morning, what are you living for? What is the most important thing in your life? What are your priorities? What do you care most about? Isaiah comes to this place and realizes that the most important thing in his life is the call that God has put on him to speak to his nation. We see a number of other characters in scripture like this, Abraham, Jonah, Jeremiah, even Paul, go through kind of personal tragedy and then they step into ministry. Uh, It's just very interesting the way God often uses those things. God will never let those uh, lessons be wasted. Well, we find that Isaiah himself is married. He has two sons. His wife is a prophetess, uh, we're told in chapter 8, verse 3. Uh, and the two sons he has, the Lord uses them um, to deliver a prophetic message to the nation. Um, Shia Jashub is a remnant shall return, a very poignant message to the nation of Israel. Because at this point, they haven't yet gone into captivity. And then this great name. If you ever have a child, this is one name that you want to have on the list when you're thinking of baby names. Uh, Maha Shalhau Hashbaz. What a great name that is. Just rolls off the tongue. It might take him a little bit of time to learn to spell that in school. Um, but uh, the name simply means swift is body, speedy is prey. So the idea here is that the, um, the, the uh, judgment and so on um, the, uh, for Damascus and Syria uh, was soon going to take place, where they were going to be plundered by the king of Assyria. Uh, Damascus and Samaria, we find, uh, gang together against Israel, against the Judah, should I say, the southern kingdom. And the prophecy was um, that God was going to use Assyria to bring swift judgment upon them. So, It's conjecture. We don't have a, a de- definitive uh, uh, reference to scripture as such. But it's believed, and certainly recorded in the Mishnah, uh, the Jewish um, writing, that Isaiah died as a martyr. 
Um, is the suggestion is that King Manasseh, who was the worst king of Judah, uh, actually cut him in half with a wooden saw. Now, there is an allusion in Hebrews 11.37 that actually talks of God's servants who died in this way. So clearly there were prophets who died in that way. The Mishnah says that Isaiah certainly is one of those. So um, it would appear that he died as a martyr. In fact, it's been said before, you know, it's not so much dying as a martyr, it's living as a martyr. It's living with your life given over to the things of God. Um, the death, in a sense, is just the end result of that. But the living as a martyr is the harder part. Justin Martyr, his, his name, Justin Martyr, in AD 50, also um, supported this view. That was his position as well from obviously his studies. He was a little bit closer to those events than we are. Just a bit of background then about uh, this book. We're going to find that the ministry spans the reigns of a number of kings. Isaiah, we've already mentioned, his cousin. And then following on, the next king in the royal line was Jotham, and then Ahaz, and then Hezekiah, and then finally Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. Again, this kind of 50-year or so time span that we see. We're going to see other prophets were contemporary with Isaiah. He wasn't alone at this time in Israel. Uh, we have Amos and Hosea in the northern kingdom, um, so the top part of Israel, uh, referred to as Israel, and also Micah uh, in the southern in Judah. So if we... Um, We'll look at the chart in a minute to show you the, the, the flow of these. Um, but Isaiah served in the king's court. Micah preached in the countryside. So they're both contemporaneous, working along the same time. Isaiah, in a sense, in the city. Micah in the countryside of Judah. Looking at the kings of Israel, this is the, the period of time where Isaiah is prophesying. So the very latter part of Jeroboam's reign, there's two Jeroboams in Israel's history. The first, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, uh, who's the one that leads Israel into sinning, uh, sets up these idols in Bethel and Dan and so on. And this is at the time of the split from Solomon, Solomon's son. Jeroboam takes the southern kingdom, Rehoboam takes the northern kingdom there. And then we have all these different dynasties going all the way down. And then we have this second Jeroboam here. And again, Hosea, Amos in this period of time. Uh, and then these other kings during this period of time. And this is the period where Isaiah is going to be prophesying. If we look at the kings of Judah, again, this is the period of Isaiah or Azariah. You also find his name written in the text. Um, this is the period of time again where Isaiah is prophesying. It's to these kings primarily that Isaiah will speak. These are the kings of Judah, uh, so the southern kingdom. And it's during this time, in about 722 BC, um, so almost halfway through Israel, or halfway through his ministry, should I say, that Israel, the northern kingdom, end up going into captivity. So hopefully it gives you kind of a little flavour of uh, when these things are taking place. Well, the reigns of Isaiah and Jeroboam in the north were great years of prosperity and relative peace um, for the nation. Judah was also making military preparation. Uh, Assyria were on the rise. Egypt were militarily strong and so on. So Judah are getting ready. They're aware that things could happen. But the upper strata of society lived indulgent, extravagant and very sensual lives. Uh, the masses, on the other hand, lived in abject poverty. So there's a real kind of class division in the nation of Israel at this time. Land grabbing and so on, oppression of the poor were major problems. Totally contrary to the law which spoke very clearly about who owned the land and who the land could be passed to and so on. Uh, those things were being rejected and it was purely about who had the most power. Religious uh, conditions also were intolerable. Uh, idolatry was rampant in Judah and in Israel. It's incredible, you know, Israel had gone off and, uh, and they'd served their idols um, 
Isaiah even mocks about this, uh, as we'll see, but making comment about, you know, you go into the forest, you chop down a tree, you kind of chop it in half, you use half of it to, to cook your meal, and then the other half you kind of carve and make an idol out of and worship it as God. You know, you and I, we look at those things and we think, they're silly, it's crazy, who would do such a thing? And yet, of course, we live in a society where people worship all sorts of things. They worship their cars, they worship um, the latest fashion accessory, the latest Cad Kiston handbag, or a uh, particular whatever it may be. You know, and people put so much store on, on these things, and they become the goal in their life, the thing that they're seeking after. And Isaiah comments, of course, that you know, they have ears, but they don't uh, hear, they have eyes, they don't see, mouths, they don't speak. Um, of course, you know, how stupid it is, because when you're in trouble and you cry out to that God, that God can't answer you. You know, when you're in a predicament and you cry out to your car or to whatever it is that you've you know, invested your efforts and energies into that's become your God, it can't answer, it can't help, it can't give you any comfort or counsel. Well, it's just the same in our day. It's just that we change the, the, the situation slightly, but the, the basis of it is the same. Of course, lifeless ritual, very much the same as we have in our day, was exactly what was going on in Israel and Judah at the time. They were going through the motions of their religious practices. How many people today are going to church because that's what they do on a Sunday? No real burning desire in their heart to come and worship God or to learn a scripture. The religious leaders had compromised themselves. I mean, this almost could be a list of this country today. I mean, religious leaders compromising themselves. I spoke a few weeks ago um, about a friend that I have uh, is going through for Methodist ordination and so on. And the instruction that he's been given by these theologians that are training the Methodist ministers. And that's not to single Methodists out. Every denomination in this country is the same. The, the teaching is terrible. And it's these so-called experts and theologians. They know nothing of the gospel. They know nothing of the word of God. They don't understand the Bible. And yet they position themselves as experts. Teaching the next generation of people that are going to stand in pulpits. Teaching their congregations. It was just the same in, in Israel's day, in Isaiah's day. And the true worship of Jehovah was intertwined with pagan practices. Well, isn't that what we see today? So much in the church. You know, we've got all sorts of pagan ideas, labyrinths and, you know, all the kind of use of candles and incense and so many other things. And we've got the messy church coming in, all these other bits and pieces that are just impacting Christianity. And so many people, oh, but it's a good thing. And they, they try and talk about the positives and the benefits and the way it will draw people in. You know, Israel, when they were camped in the wilderness, didn't for a moment try and draw the lepers into the camp. That was never their intention. They recognized the futility of such an exercise. If you go and bring lepers into the camp, what will you get? You'll get disease spreading throughout the camp. What did they do? They kept the lepers separate. But what would happen when a leper was healed and cleansed of this incurable disease? Well, it's very clear that they would be pronounced clean by the high priest and then they'd come in to the fellowship, into the body of believers as it were. That's how it should be for the church. You know, we're not to be this entertainment centre um, where we just try and attract people to come in. This is the body of Christ. And it's an incredibly unique privilege that we have to fellowship together, to grow together. 
But we're to go out, and I mean, Ephesians makes it clear that the, the mission, our mission together, is, and what we should be doing, what I should be doing as, we, as I teach, and, and so on, we're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And what is that work of ministry? It's when you go out from here. It's when you're talking to people that knock on your door trying to sell you things you didn't want. And it's when you're down the high street and you have opportunity to talk, or at work, or wherever. That's where we're to fulfill our ministries that the Lord has given us. The morals and ethics also were a, a very low uh, at this particular time. Again, this just reads like it is in this country right now. Very apt book for us. Just to mention, there's four great political crises that marked the ministry uh, of Isaiah. Um, firstly, there's the, a war that takes place uh, with the Syrians and the Ephraimites. Um, so this is kind of Israel. Uh, it's around 735 to 732 uh, BC. And we have the uh, Pekah, uh, the king of Israel, and Rezin of Damascus. They conspire against Ahaz of Judah. So this is the northern kingdom, gang up with uh, um, uh, Syria. Uh, and uh, they try and come down against Judah, against Ahaz. Uh, they want to depose him and then put their own king on the throne. But Ahaz appeals to Assyria, of all places, who then comes in, captures Damascus in about 732, uh, took all of Israel on the east coast of the Jordan, uh, north of Carmel, and captures them at that point, uh, prior to the final uh, invasion of Assyria. So this is one of the wars that Isaiah kind of goes through. Um, the background for that is 2 Kings 15, um, chapter 30, uh, verse 37, through to chapter 16, verse 9. So that's the, one of the wars that we find during this period. Well, another one is the fall of Samaria. So about 10 years or so later, and this is again uh, when the Assyrians, Shalmaneser the fourth here, he then comes down for three years. He uh, besieges um, Hoshea. This is a king, the final king in, nor- in Israel, in the northern kingdom. But upon uh, Shalmaneser's death, Sargon, his commander-in-chief, sees the Assyrian throne, and he comes and takes Samaria. Now again, Isaiah is down south in Jerusalem, but this is all going on up north. This is another major thing that occurs during this time. Hezekiah at this point also is reigning. He's very concerned. Are Assyria going to come and capture him? Well, we'll mention that a little bit later. As a result of this, though, Sargon deports 27,280, history records, of Israel's most prominent citizens. Uh, Your reference to that, 2 Kings 17 and the first six verses there. Another war, a battle that takes place, the siege of Ashdod. Now, Ashdod, you may remember, is one of the Philistine cities. Um, but this is in 711 BC. So after the northern kingdom has been captured, well, then we have this siege in Ashdod going on. Uh, and again, this has brought the Assyrians right into Judah's heartland, right next door, as it were, to where they are. Uh, Isaiah chapter 20, first six verses, your reference for that. And then finally, 701 BC, this invasion by Shennacherib of Assyria, another Assyrian king. He comes and captures 46 fortified cities. He took um, some 200,000 captives and laid siege to Jerusalem. Now he was unsuccessful in this siege, and we'll see in a while Hezekiah um, cries out to God and pleads. As a result, the Lord answers Hezekiah, and 185,000 Assyrian troops are killed, slaughtered by the Lord, we find. Uh, it's an incredible situation. An army of the Lord goes out uh, and deals with this, and he's driven away, eventually goes back to his own land, and he's killed there. So 
Second Kings 18, verse 13, through to chapter 19, 36, uh, your reference for that particular battle. So those are kind of the, the main battles, in a sense, that go on during Isaiah's ministry. I just mention this is interesting because we go through battles in our own life. There's struggles, there's all things, sorts of things going on around us. But through those things, God would have us be faithful. In Isaiah's generation, just to know, it's interesting that this is when Rome... Athens and Sparta were all founded. A really significant period of history. You know, Rome that will become so powerful later on. This is when Rome, the embryonic Rome, set up by these two brothers, was um, founded. And Athens, of course, in Greece, and Sparta also, uh, when they actually um, begin. Egypt, interestingly, this is, uh, anybody's interested in uh, the history side of this, the 23rd, 24th, and 25th dynasties, dynasties reigned during Isaiah's ministry. Now, all I would say on that, just from a biblical point of view, it's interesting to be aware of the fact that Egypt kind of rise in power. And many of the small nations around them start to look to Egypt for help. Because Assyria, again, the big kind of power on the, the, the horizon at this point. And so people look to Egypt as, will you help us against Assyria? And we see this kind of situation. Israel themselves do exactly that. Now, the problem is, we need to be aware of these things because it's the logical thing. You know, you've got somebody not too far away that could give you help against this big bully that's coming in. But of course, we should trust God. And the, the, the danger for all of us is, you know, we'll look to those worldly alliances that we can find that will strengthen us, that will support our position or whatever else. And God effectively rebukes Israel. Of course, I mean, God made it very clear that they were never to return to Egypt. They weren't to go that way. We'll see next week with Jeremiah how he ended up being taken to Egypt against his will. He didn't want to go, um, but he's dragged away effectively there. So and it's just important to understand that we have Assyria and kind of the north um, east of uh, Israel and then we've got uh, Egypt obviously below uh, Israel as it were. And these two kind of factions in this area uh, all vying for, for the dominance as it were. Okay. One of the key verses we find, and we're going to look at some other verses in a minute, but if you like a key verse, it's hard to pick out a key verse from the book, but probably this is one of the best that gives us a great summary of the whole of the book. It's, therefore, this is from chapter 30, verse 18 and 19, but therefore will Jehovah wait that he might be gracious unto you, for Jehovah is a God of justice. That's an incredible verse. It's talking about a God who is patient, a God who is gracious, but a God who is just. And that, of course, is this great enigma, this great challenge. How can God be a God of justice and a God of grace at the same time? Well, that's what we find within this book. A key word that we find in the book is salvation. Used 32 times by Isaiah, that is salvation and derivatives thereof. Key phrase uh, where we find the Holy One of Israel uh, and the, the Holy One, those two options, uh, are used 33 times. And of course the key thought is that Israel shall be saved by Jehovah through judgment and grace. So um, just some pointers, some helpful things hopefully there. 
The materials of Isaiah are grouped, uh, again, together topically, not chronologically. That's just useful to understand. As you read through this book, you're not reading it starts at chapter 1 and gets to the end of chapter 66. Um, We have different things dotted around the book. They're grouped, uh, again, regarding topics, not necessarily in date order. Just as an aside, the Isaiah scroll, as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, again, was found... Um, in Qumran, it's 24 feet long. Uh, incredibly, essentially the same as we have today. We understand, of course, from this that the Bible has not changed through the centuries. It's the same as it's always been. But also, just something very interesting for us, Isaiah is a miniature Bible. You're aware that we've got 66 books in the Bible. We've got um, 39 uh, chapters, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. Well, Isaiah is split up into exactly the same thing. There's 66 chapters We've got 39 chapters making up one division, and then 27 chapters from chapter 40 to the end making up another. But it's even more than that, because the first section deals with law, sin, and judgment, and the second deals with the Messiah, grace, forgiveness, and redemption. Clearly, this seems to be God's design. It's a fascinating way that God has engineered these things. There are, in, in well, honestly, probably three distinct sections in the book. The first, the Old Testament section, if you like, we've got um, chapters 1 through 35 as the first part of that. And we deal with the first six chapters dealing with Judah. The next chapters 7 through 12 dealing with Israel. Then we have prophecies surrounding the nations from chapters 13 through 23, and that's Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Syria, Egypt, Edom, Arab, Empire. And then from chapters 24 through 27, it's prophecies regarding the world and the day of the Lord, as uh, is referred to. This phrase appears so often in scripture, um, sometimes referred to as the little apocalypse, um, but this idea, this day that God is going to bring judgment on this world. From chapter 28 to 33, we have six woes pronounced on Jerusalem. And then from chapter 34 to 35, we get hints here of the tribulation and the millennium that will then follow it. All these ideas, very familiar to us from the New Testament books, particularly books like Revelation, and yet we find so much of our understanding actually comes from Isaiah. Again, sitting in that Old Testament sections of the first 39 chapters, from chapters 36 through to 39 is another, the second division, if you like. And we've just got a historical parenthesis here. This is simply a bit of history that's put right in the middle of this um, book of Isaiah for us. And really what we find here is uh, the troubles that Hezekiah experiences with this Assyrian threat of invasion we mentioned a moment ago. Hezekiah's prayer uh, that God would intervene, do something, and God does answer. Because we find the Assyrians are repelled. We mentioned there's 185,000 troops that are wiped out. But then Hezekiah falls sick, and chapter 38 deals with that. We find that his prayer to God, 15 years, are added to his life. But then we find in chapter 39, he makes a very foolish mistake. Possibly down to pride or just not thinking. But an envoy, envoys from Babylon arrive and he shows them everything. And of course, it wouldn't be very long before Babylon returned to take it all. So we see all of that, that little section there. And then the final section really, as I say, the kind of the New Testament section of the book from chapters 40 through to 66, these 27 chapters. Uh, and this deals with the purpose of peace, if you like. Uh, chapter 48, verse 22 says, There is no peace, says Yahweh, Jehovah, to the wicked. 
We then see from chapter 49 to 57, the Prince of Peace. Chapter 53, it's often referred to the the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament, the real high ground. Uh, Christ, right in the middle of all of this, uh, is depicted for us here, uh, the Prince of Peace. And then from chapter 58 through to 66, the program of priests, how God is going to bring all this about. Well, there's a number of messianic prophecies that we find through the book, only exceeded in the book of Psalms, these references to the Messiah. We find the references to the Messiah's deity, eternity, pre-existence, the fact that he's a creator, his unlimited power, this omnipotence, omnipresence, he can be everywhere. But reference also to the incarnation, the fact that he would be a youth growing up in Nazareth, he was anointed as a servant of the Lord, chosen and delighted in, He had this mild manner, ministering, kindness, we see. He was obedient to the will of his father. He had this message to bring that we see in chapter 61. These miracles, sufferings also, gathering to exaltation, uh, rejection by Israel. He was shamed, struck, bruised, and so on. Uh, His vicarious death, his death in the place of us. We see. So, so many of these things we find recorded in uh, the book of Isaiah, including the burial, resurrection, his ascension, spiritual offspring, that he would effectively bring forth life with others because of his death, the high priestly ministry of the Messiah, the future glory of the Messiah. And again, just an interesting aside, I found this fascinating, just got asked one of the commentaries. That Jesus, or the Messiah, is not mentioned as a servant after chapter 53. Now if you're familiar with chapter 53, which speaks of the suffering servant, what Christ would accomplish, it's just interesting that Christ isn't mentioned as a servant after that. I just thought that was a very interesting aside. Well, the liberal critics have uh, had a a great time attacking the book of Isaiah. Really, the last 200 years, we've seen a whole rise in these things. Uh, Really started back in 1780, this chap by the name of J.B. Kof. Uh, first challenge this, the idea that it was one author he suggested there was two authors and then um, sadly uh, a Bible commentator George Adam Smith in his uh, Expositor's Bible commentary kind of popularised the idea and it kind of grew and gained momentum and it actually led to the idea that we have two different Isaiahs two people that wrote the book and then even a suggestion that maybe there was three people that wrote the book because of the different styles and so on well It's totally discredited today. Competent scholarship has shown that that is not the case. But aside from that, we've got the biblical account. If you look in the Gospel of John, in John's Gospel we have a quote from John 12, 38, from Isaiah 53. Now that's the second half, if you like, of the book. If you like, the New Testament uh, side of the book. But then also in John chapter 12, um, verse 40 and 41, we have a quote from Isaiah 6. Uh, verse 9 and 10. So we have the both ends of the book, in a sense, quoted from. Now, the liberal scholars will tell you that these are different authors. Well, they need to read scripture because John, in John 12, 39, after quoting this quote from Isaiah 53, then says, therefore, they could not believe because that Isaiah said again. And then we have this second quote. John makes it clear. We have just one Isaiah. Now, uh, there's pages of these comments and commentaries that go through looking at what the critics have said. Um, But the Bible answers the critics every time. Um, There is just one Isaiah as recorded in Scripture. This is his book, the book that God has allowed us to have of the record of these things. 
Okay, let's just have a look at some key verses. Uh, we obviously can't study the, the book in its entirety, 66 chapters. We'd be here for some time. Um, but let's just look at some of the things um, that might uh, uh, just bless us and help us. Firstly, in chapter 1, and we're not going to go through every chapter, but I just wanted to highlight some things. Chapter 1, we have this great statement where the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Just as I mentioned here, this idea of this scarlet and this crimson, they used a particular dye. Uh, I believe it came from this snail that had been crushed and emitted this kind of dye and so on. So the, a, a garment that had been dipped once uh, and dyed would be scarlet. But if it was dipped twice to really impregnate the material so that it would never come out, then it would become red like crimson. So speaking of our sin being like crimson, totally impregnated with this die with sin in our lives and God says though that be the way you are so impregnated with sin in your heart your mind your life should be as wool be like white as snow now I just want you to look at this because God is saying come and let us reason together firstly it's great that we have a God whom we can reason with God has given us the ability to reason And he says, let's talk about this. Let's come to agreement. But I want you to know just how unreasonable this offer is. You see, what we've been given here is not what we deserve. We have no entitlement or rights. One of the pastors up at the conference this week, a pastor from Montana uh, by the name of Levi, was speaking. He was saying that, there was a situation, he was uh, travelling uh, abroad, uh, some uh, mission work he was on, and uh, a colleague of his, or another pastor was with him as well. And he arrived at his hotel, and he got there very late in the evening, he was on his own at this point. And he went to the, uh, to the check-in desk, uh, and spoke to the reception, and said, I've just come to book in. And uh, he said, this is my reservation details. And the reception said, I'm really sorry, sir, but we don't have a room for you. He said, well, what do you mean you don't have a room? I- I've booked in, I- you know. And he said at that point, he said, you know, you want me to tell you that the Holy Spirit just welled up. And I just, he said, you know, it wasn't quite like that. He said, you know, but he managed to keep it together. And he said, look, you know, this is ridiculous. I've come all this way. I'm extremely tired. I want a room. So they said, let us go and see what we can do. And he said at this point, he was so tired, he'd have been happy with just a, a, you know, a cleaning cupboard somewhere. But they came back and they said, sir, we've got a room and we'll let you have it for free. And he said, that's, that's my price. I like that. That's good. And so they took him to this room. It was the presidential suite in this hotel and he said you know it's a big room when it's got its own doorbell and he said he went into this room and there was this big lounge this big uh, kind of lounge area and there was a big dining table with 12 seats around it he said it was just him on his own he said he was just taking pictures he said this is incredible he said and then he moved into the they showed him the bathroom he said it was large enough to give a great white shark a bath he said it was huge he said and then the bed he said he likened it to the thing some of you may have seen home alone and uh, where the, the, the young boy there, his parents go, and he's at home, and he's jumping up and down on the bed. He said, that's what I was doing. He said, I had this massive suite. He said, it was wonderful. He said, of course, he came back down to earth the following night, he said, because uh, they then found him a, a normal room. He said, and I could touch all the walls with, you know, with all my limbs without moving. So, But what he said was, it's about entitlement. He said he was so amazed at this place, that the, the scale of it and everything, that had just been given to him. He said, but if he'd have had the money and he'd known that the hotel had this room and he'd booked in advance for the presidential suite, 
And he'd walked in and noticed there's only 11 chairs. Why 11? I want 12 chairs. I know there's only me, but I still want my 12 chairs. And I want that doorbell. On the, if there's no doorbell, I'm going to send it back. You know? And he'd say, that, you know, if he had paid for it, he'd have wanted so much more. And he expected to have all of these things. And he said, you know, that's what it's like for us as grace. You know, we have been given something we did not deserve. Sometimes we almost seem to think we're entitled to all the things we have. He said he's amazed that he has, as he put it, you know, that I'm even given a jersey. that I'm allowed to sit on a bench of this thing called the body of Christ. You know, we had our England football team. Let's not talk too much about them. But, you know, as they were called up, there was a number of players that were saying it was the greatest honour in their life just to be called up to the team, whether they got to play or not. We've been called up to the body of Christ. And not only that, we are allowed to play and get involved. You have been invited into the body of Christ. You've been given something you don't deserve. Peter speaks of the fact that there were, po- there were, there were prophets way before prophesying of this grace that was going to come, of the salvation. They never got to partake of it. And it's like, in a sense, we've been given all of this free. We live now in this time of grace. We live after the cross and we live with all the benefits and the blessings that come because of the cross of Jesus. And it's like we've been given Habakkuk's room or Isaiah's room. They didn't get to have these things. But you and I have been blessed beyond measure. And I want you just again look at this first. God says, come let us reason together. This is all on his part. It's not reasonable that we should be given so much. Until you realise the transaction that took place to make this possible was that Jesus took upon himself all our sin so that we can be white as snow so that we can be made like wool again this is breathtaking people I just pray that you get excited about the grace that we live in the time in history that we live in again Isaiah didn't get to experience the blessings that we know living after the cross living in this age of grace Chapter 2, a number of things just to mention, but just briefly, this just talks about in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. You and I will be there. We will be part of this great body of people, the body, the bride of Christ, that will return with Christ at the second coming. Many people shall go and say, come, you let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways. That's when you're going to have real teaching. He will teach us of his ways. And we walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. You know, Jesus expounds partially on some of this in Matthew 25. You know, the nations being judged and so on. But these things that are yet to come... In chapter 5, we have mention of the vine. Now, Israel, uh, Isaiah uh, speaks of these vines. Israel was supposedly this vine. They were supposed to represent God to the world. But it became this vineyard that we read of that God tended for and cared for, brought forth wild grapes, something that it wasn't intended to be. 
See, Israel should have been this witness. Revelation, interestingly, speaks of the vine of the earth. This is the false vine designed to lead all away from God. But there's another vine. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And he comes to lead us into this relationship with God. Just as an aside from a study point of view, we have these three vines and you can track them all through scripture. Very interesting study to do. Chapter 6, we have obviously the call of Isaiah. And this great challenge that goes out with the Lord's call to Isaiah. And says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, Lord, here I am. Send me. You know, could you or I, this morning, if the Lord called, and spoke of the, the, the desperate plight of the people in our nation, the people in our towns around here, who is prepared to say, Lord, here I am. Send me. You know, what are we living our lives for? Do we realize again what we've been given? We've been given the presidential suite and more. What we deserve was far less than even than the broom cupboard. Chapter 7, we have a number of scriptures in the, the, the section that talk about the promised seed. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Now this is actually a prophecy given to Ahaz of Israel. And he says, the Lord shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name God with us. Emmanuel. And we're told, butter and honey shall he eat, but um, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. But then notice verse 16, this prophecy that's given. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and the good, and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest, again, because of their way that they looked after and dealt with the stewardship God has given them, is that the land that you abhor shall be forsaken of both their kings. So the northern and the southern kingdom, God is saying, before the Messiah, before God with us, Emmanuel comes, Israel will lose both the northern king and the southern king. Now history confirms that happened. Chapter 9, again we have the promised king. And we have this wonderful um, scripture, you're very familiar with it, I won't read it all now. But again, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders and so on. But notice, upon the throne of David, he will reign. That means Israel have to exist as an identifiable national people for this to happen. The throne of David was a national Jewish throne. We'll look next week in Jeremiah at the incredible prophecies, and there's many in Isaiah too, that speak of God's plan and fulfillment of that plan for Israel. Well, chapter 11 deals with the coming kingdom. I'm not going to read all the scriptures now. Um, Many of these these references and scriptures you'll be familiar with. Um, But speaking of this one, this branch that will come out of the root of Jesse, Jesse being David's father, the line of David, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Great scriptures to read. I really strongly encourage you just to spend, you know, just take a week. If you've not already read it, going through the Bible this year, just, just take some time and just read through this book. Chapter 13, very interesting. It deals with the coming tribulation. Now just to mention, we need to be very clear about this. Notice, howl you, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And it shall come as a destruction. This is the real key point. Where? From the Almighty. Now why am I making mention of that? Well, look also verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord shall come, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it we really need to understand these portions of scripture because many get confused 
The tribulation is not the generic tribulation that Jesus promised that the church, the Christians would experience. The tribulation or the day of the Lord is God's wrath, we've just seen it in the text there, on the sinners, on a Christ-rejecting world. Now, the church therefore has to be removed before this time of judgment can begin. Because if we are left, as God pours out this wrath on the sinners, we're being judged twice. You see, we were judged at Calvary. And if we are left for this time of God's wrath, it means that we are again being judged. And that makes a mockery of the blood of Christ. It's not just some side issue, this. See, God cannot judge the righteous with the wicked. And there are many scriptures we could refer to. Righteous have always been removed prior to the judgment of the wicked. Well, chapter 14 deals with the fall of Lucifer. We've seen that already, the I will statements of Lucifer and so on. Uh, We've uh, talked a lot about that in recent times. Chapter 26, just let me read this to you. So important. And this is one of these verses we should commit to memory. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. Trust you in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. You know, we need strength. We can't do it on our own. And I love this this third verse of Isaiah 26, that God will keep you, keep me in perfect peace if all we need to do is have our mind stayed on him, just set on him, focused on him, just trusting. It's a wonderful, wonderful scripture. Isaiah 30, another great verse just to pull out. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Now the verse goes on to say, but you would not, speaking of Israel and their kings and so on. But for us, in quietness and confidence, just trusting in God. Chapter 31, we have reference and allusions to the man of sin, and there's other places in the book as well that do this for us. Um, referring to, we'll see a number of times, the Assyrian, uh, this reference to Antichrist. Now actually, in the Old Testament, I'm just going to whiz through these, there's actually 33 allusions. I'll leave these in the notes if you want to go through them. Um, 33 allusions in the Old Testament, different names that are given to Antichrist, if you like. Um, in the New Testament... We actually have 13 different names that are given to Antichrist as we go through. So again, those slides, those notes will be in there if you want to go through those and have a look. Uh, But we find this individual referred to and referenced many ways and many times as we go through the book of Isaiah, through the Old Testament and through the New Testament as well. Well, chapter 40, we then go move into this kind of New Testament section of the book as it seemingly uh, has been designed to be. And it starts to speak of the coming peace that God has got for, for those that would trust in him. Isaiah 40 verse 1, Comfort you, comfort you my people, says your God. Speak you comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that a warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I just need to mention this. God isn't going to pay them back twice. You know, this isn't, you know, you've borrowed one pound from me, therefore I'm going uh, to want it back you know, with interest. That's two pounds. That's, that's not the implication. What it's saying, the idea is double. It's like when you look in a mirror and you see a reflection, an exact likeness, a double of yourself. That's what God's saying. Israel received back an exact likeness 
for her sins. God will judge them fairly, but will expect everything to be paid back for their iniquity and so on. Of course, we have great references in Isaiah to the word of God. Just picking up verse 7. The grass withers, the flowers fade, because the spirit of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. You know, the word of God will outlive origin of the species. It will outlive every work of man. The word of God will stand forever. And every knee will bow before the author of this incredible book. This is a little aside. It's been estimated that the universe is some 30 billion light years wide. That's uh, 30 billion years travelling at the speed of light, which is about 186,000 miles per second. If we do the maths on this, effectively, because we're told that the God spreads out the heavens like the span of his hand. It means God's hand is somewhere about 176.64 sextillion miles wide. Of course, God is without limit. But I mean, just the whole vastness of space. And God stretches out the heavens. Just incredible. So many wonderful uh, verses we have. Just talking about God's character, God's nature, and so on. Just want to just these chapters from 43 and so on, just to draw your attention to. Just we read Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. Of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses love that verse. They take that one and use that. And my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. God says, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Saviour. Now, if you're talking to your Jehovah's Witness friend, if they come knocking on your door, draw them to this verse. God says, there is no other God, and God alone is the Saviour. Well, the New Testament asserts that Jesus is the only Saviour of sinners. And I haven't given you references, I'm sure you're familiar. All the way through the New Testament we find that. So, for both to be true, Jesus must be God. It's the only way you can reconcile those. Isaiah 43.15, we find, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. God speaking. God says he's Israel's King. And yet the New Testament asserts that Jesus is the King of Israel. For both to be true, Jesus must be God. Isaiah 44.6, thus says the Lord... King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Interestingly, we have the two phrases there. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. We have two people referenced there. I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Well, again, the New Testament, particularly the book of Revelation, assert that Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. For both to be true, Jesus must be God. Isaiah 44 verse 24, thus says the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself. Well, here we find God saying, I created everything. But the New Testament in Colossians asserts that Jesus is the creator of all things. For both to be true, Jesus must be God. It's a great portion of scripture to take a Jehovah's Witness to. Of course they'll try and argue away from this, but you cannot deny the fact that God claims these unique attributes, and yet they're all attributes of Jesus as well. We spoke previously, chapter 45, this incredible letter 
that God gives to Cyrus. Now this is amazing as you look at the context, the history of all of these things. Jewish tradition actually records that as Cyrus arrives at the recently captured Babylon, this is after the feast of Balthazar, we'll look at that soon when we get to Daniel. After that feast, that night, the city was captured. Well, as Cyrus arrives about 11 days later, he's met at the gate of Babylon by an elderly Daniel. And Daniel presents Cyrus with the scroll of Isaiah, the very thing that we have, in a sense, before us. Written over 150 years beforehand. And in this incredible scroll, God gives the details. God says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up the rivers. That's how the Persians under Cyrus conquered Babylon. They dried up the waters. They came in under the gates. That says of Cyrus, there's Cyrus's name. In this scroll written 150 years beforehand. He is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built unto the temple, thy foundations shall be laid. As a result of this, Cyrus signs a decree allowing Israel to return home. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have hold, and subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings. Now by now the, the story has got round. If you remember, Balthasar, in that situation, as this writing appears on the on the wall, we're told that his loins are loosened. I don't need to go into the details. You understand the problem he had. He didn't make it to the bathroom in time. And the story of this has got round the city. And Cyrus, no doubt, has heard of it. And here we have 150 years recorded. Poor old Balthazar, it's a little bit of a problem, recorded in the word of God for eternity. And Cyrus is presented with this. An incredible scripture. And again, just speaking of the way that God allowed them uh, to move in to conquer the city. Um, so just to uh, draw your attention to that. <clears throat> well, of course, we have God's challenge to the world uh, in uh, Isaiah 46. Um, I remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God effectively saying his unique attribute is that he can tell future in advance. Well, we could spend a whole morning going through Isaiah 53. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the details and the things that are there. But this incredible transition, this exchange, you can see these verses from verse 3. He is despised and rejected. It goes on, we hid, as it were, our faces. He was despised, we esteemed him not. He surely brought our griefs, our sorrows, we did esteem him stricken of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's just an amazing portion of scripture underneath the text here. Some of you may already be familiar. There are numerous equidistant letter sequences, and uh, maybe some other time we'll have the opportunity to go through those things. Well, Isaiah 59:19, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Just a fantastic scripture to remind us that whatever the enemy does, the Lord will counter. 
Chapter 61, we read the ministry of the Messiah. We find it's quoted by Jesus partially in the New Testament. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And in the New Testament... That's where Jesus stops the quote. Why? Because the last few words of this prophecy have not yet been fulfilled. Because when Jesus comes back, he will come back on a white horse to make war, to conquer, and the day of vengeance of our God. That is yet to come. Chapter 65, an interesting chapter, speaks of what God is going to do to this earth. This renovated earth. And I know we have there, we need to be aware. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And God, of course, will create a brand new heavens and a new earth. But not until this current earth is renovated. And then we have this time during the millennium. We just go on and we see that there will still be death during the millennium. But people will live to a much greater age. It will be a restoration of things as it was back in Eden. And then finally, in chapter 66, the house of God. Of course, God makes it very clear. He says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you'll build for me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things is mine handmade, and those things uh, have been, says the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. You know, so many people put great store on the building that they meet in for their church. We were talking to this Roman Catholic up at York and commenting on the, the lavishly ornate buildings and everything else and saying, yeah, for the first 300 years, Christians met in houses, home fellowships. They didn't have the buildings. It's only when Constantine legalizes Christianity and suddenly Christians are allowed to meet in the pagan buildings that we start to get, where did all the stained glass and all these things come from? That's not part of scripture, that's not part of the church. You know, the church is you and I. We are the church. We are the building that God will inhabit. You know, wherever two or three are gathered together. Well, that's where we have the church. It's not a building. Every place that we choose to meet becomes sanctified and holy because we are there in the name of Jesus. This is a, a great lesson to us, that it's not about the building. What's the greatest lesson we can draw from all these things? Well, despite all that's coming, you know, the greatest concern should be the condition of your heart, because that's where God says he wants to dwell. Now, in closing, I want to just refer us back to the verse that Jared read to us, just from, from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29. We're told there, He gives power to the faint. To them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. The young man shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. I love, as Jerry shared that with us, that picture of eagles waiting till it's the right time. Waiting until the rocks are warm enough, till there's enough hot air, so they can just simply step out into the day. In ease, just immediately going on to one of the thermal currents. You know, that's the way we should be, waiting on the Lord, drawing our strength from Him. As we said earlier, Isaiah prophesies all these things, just an incredible book, but going through numerous battles going on in the world around him, numerous challenges personally, being hated by the nation. Jeremiah next week will see even worse than that the things that he endured. 
How can we survive the challenges? Well, it's simply by waiting upon the Lord. Again, I'll just read verse 28 to you. Have you not known, have you not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not faint, neither is weary, and there is no searching of his understanding. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this great promise that they that wait upon you shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary and walk and not faint. Father, we have to confess that at times in our walk, we feel faint. There are times we feel like giving up. There are times that it all becomes a little bit too much. But Lord, help us at those moments to know that we can wait upon you. That we can come back to you. And that in you will be our strength. Lord, may we have our minds stayed on you. That you would keep us in perfect peace, we pray. Lord, we thank you for this incredible book of Isaiah. Lord, impress upon our hearts these lessons. Thank you, Father, that you have such a wonderful plan beginning to end. That, Lord, the wicked will not prosper. That you will judge them. That, Jesus, you will come back and sit on the throne of David. Lord, we thank you for all of these things, but ask that you help us to live and walk a godly life, that you would be glorified and that you would be honoured. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.